Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we are speaking about anxiety and how we have the power to manage our anxious feelings through mindfulness training and curiosity. This conversation is the first half of episode 133, where Lauren and I speak with New York Times bestselling author and addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Dr. Judd Brewer, to share insights from his international bestselling book called Unwinding Anxiety, which shares a clinically proven path to help us break the cycle that drives anxiety. You will learn about what anxiety is, some of the common symptoms that can result from feeling anxious, and how the majority of us can manage our anxieties by becoming curious about our sensations. Dr. Judd shares how our feelings of worry and fear are often hidden in unhealthy habit loops, and he shares a couple of his patients' success stories to show how we have the power to effectively unwind our anxieties. Be inspired to better understand your anxieties and learn how to train your brain so that you can feel, perform, and live better. I just want to start off by saying Lauren and I are thrilled to have you here. We absolutely loved reading your book. We are two people who are quite anxious. <laughs> so we needed your book and we learned so much and we are super, super excited to share your lessons with our listeners today and, and also learn from you. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more. So maybe we can all learn something together. That's, that's the best conversation to have. Yeah, no, definitely. When Kelly and I were joking around, we're like, oh, I'm anxious about this interview. And then we're like the <laughs> irony in this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you are a recognized thought leader in the field of habit change. And in your latest book, Unwinding Anxiety, you share a clinically proven roadmap to help us break unhealthy habit loops. And considering we are living in one of the most anxious periods in history and hundreds of millions of people suffer from anxiety. Your book is not only timely, but also very important. And again, we are super, super eager to have this chat with you today and learn more. So to start things off, the word anxiety and the line, I am anxious is being thrown around today more than ever. And especially during the pandemic, though, I find that many of us are unaware of our triggers. So I'm curious, what are some of the most common anxiety triggers you see today? And how can we begin to uncover our own triggers? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say <laughs> I'm laughing because it could be just about anything that could trigger anxiety for someone. And that's because our brains associate, you know, this is where triggers come from. Our brains associate certain things with worrying or getting anxious, and that can be very, very individual. So the good news is, and I actually have tons of patients who with generalized anxiety disorder, for example, and they wake up in the morning and the first thing they feel is anxiety. So they're, they're half awake and they, they come in and they say, you know, I can't, I can't find all these triggers. I just wake up and I'm anxious. And I say, mm. well, you know, one, don't worry about the triggers because triggers are actually the least important part of this whole process, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I won't spoil it. And two, anxiety can be a trigger itself for driving anxiety habit loops. So just the feeling of anxiety can be a trigger for more, for worrying and more anxiety. Very, very interesting. I, I know that, I mean, some of the, some of the triggers are, you know, lack of sleep, work stress, 
also a messy home, something we talk about <laughs> quite often, you know, the, the physical mess can definitely cause anxiety. And in, in your book, you actually shared a really interesting stat. You said that in uh, 2021, 39% of Americans felt more anxious than they did in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's in part because of the pandemic also. And you said that uh, the highest anxiety rates happen or occur in higher income countries. So it just goes to show the more we have, the more anxious we can become. I mean, Laura and I would love to say that the less you own, the less you need to worry about. So to be intentional with how much you have in your life and where you spend your time can be really helpful when it comes to anxiety. So I think it's so true. And I'm glad you highlight that because it's kind of like a privilege to be, to have time to worry, you know, for a lot of us. And the more stuff we have, the more stuff we have to worry about. (laughs) So I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. You said in your book that, you know, the more our needs are met, the more idle time, we kind of just have to sit around and worry about other things. So Mm -hmm. that was really interesting. I wanted to ask you, I feel like we really throw around the word anxiety these days and we all feel, oh, I'm anxious. Oh, I'm anxious about that. Can you clarify what anxiety actually is? And I want to know why you got interested in studying it in the first place. I love these questions. So yeah, absolutely. If you think of, so we could go into, I could put on my bow tie and give you a dictionary definition of anxiety. (laughs) And I think it would go something like this, you know, a feeling of nervousness, worry, or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. Does that sound dictionary enough? The way I think of it, it, I break it down is, you know, anxiety is fear of the future, you know, full stop. It is fear of the future. And the interesting piece about that is that, you know, fear is helpful. You know, when we hear rustling in the bushes, we need to figure out if that's danger and we need to run, or if we step out into a busy street and we hear a car honking, probably a signal that we need to step onto the sidewalk, you know, so fear is helpful in right in the present moment and the future, when we plan for the future, it's also helpful. But when you mush those two together, fear of the future is anxiety. And that is an anti-survival strategy that our brain has kind of come up with, where it's like, oh, fear is good. Oh, planning for the future is good. Oh, how about fear of the future? It must be good. Wrong. <laughs> so, so that's kind of a definition and you know, it gives us a hint for where, where anxiety can actually come from. So how did I get interested in studying this? Well, let me count the ways. One was that I used to have my own panic attacks when I was in residency, when I was training in to be a psychiatrist. And, you know, the blessing and the curse was that I, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a full blown panic attack. And then when it was over, I could <laughs> just count down the diagnostic checklist and be like, check, 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 check. Oh, that was just, a, I just had a panic attack, you know, so I knew what it was. Uh, so <laughs> helpful to be training at the time that I was getting them. I, uh, and <laughs> still helpful today. But the other piece that made me want to really look at anxiety and study and find ways to actually help was that I was getting anxious over helping my own patients with anxiety. So with, you know, when I prescribe a medication, the best medications out there, there is a basically a one in five chance that it's going to help somebody in a significant way. We call this in medicine, you know, the bow tie term is number needed to treat, you know, how many people you have to treat before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. And so there, you know, I'm basically playing the medication lottery. I don't know, you know, for the next five people that walk in the door, which one of them is going to show a significant reduction in symptoms. 
And what am I going to do with the other four? You know, say, well, <laughs> you didn't win the lottery, to, you know, come back in another life, you know, when you have different genes. <laughs> so, so there, you know, it's like my frustration and my anxiety, like, how am I going to help these people? It, it actually serendipitously came together with some work I was doing, you know, my lab studies habit change. And we developed this app called eat right now that helps people basically with overeating, emotional eating, you know, change their relationship to eating. And somebody in that program had said, you know, I started to use this program. And I realized that anxiety makes me eat. Can you, can you create a program for anxiety? Cause I want to get at that root cause. And at the time, you know, I was like, well, I prescribed medications, but it put a bug in my ear and made me start thinking, well, what about, you know, what can I do? What have I missed? And so I started looking back at the literature and this was my, oh crap moment. Where I was like, oh, no kidding. Back in the 1980s, when the first SSRIs were, were being marketed, I think Prozac was the first one. Back then people were theorizing that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And when I read that, my eyes basically popped out of my head because I was thinking, wow, did I sleep through that lecture in medical school? I don't remember this. <laughs> and then I also thought, hey, I know something about habits <laughs> you know, and habit change. We just had some pretty successful trials with, with some of our other work. And so I was thinking, wow, maybe we could develop a program for anxiety. And then, you know, long story short, we developed this unwinding anxiety app, did a bunch of studies. And in, in a recent study, we got a 67% reduction in anxiety and people with generalized anxiety disorder. And so if you look at that number needed to treat, you know, with medications, 5.2 is the official number. It was 1.6 mm. and, and smaller is better. So I was, you know, if, I'm, if an app could do a mic drop, <laughs> yep. <yeah>. bam, <laughs> you're like, this is the way you're like, this yeah. is the way it's not the medication. It, it's, it's, it's actually training our brain. Yeah. That's and to be clear. Yeah. For some people, medication is, is very helpful. So I'm not discouraging, you know, I prescribe medications yeah, for sure. But so for some people, medication can be helpful, but for all of us learning how our minds work, great way to go. That's so fascinating. I mean, in your book, you mentioned how anxiety hides in unhealthy habits. And I was like, okay, so if that's the case, you know, when I feel stress and tense and, you know, I have this increased heart rate and I breathe too fast. I mean, all the symptoms and anxiety, I'm like, okay, what do I do? I'm like, okay, well, I know I overeat. That's my way. Some people, when mm -hmm. they get anxious, they don't eat at all. For me, mm -hmm. I overeat. I overuse my phone. I am not, you know, I don't sleep as well. And these are the things that happen. So uh, I'm curious, uh, can you, can you share some other common habits caused by anxiety? And also I, I I'm hoping you can share the relationship between anxiety and our addiction to these habits. Yes. Well, let's, let's start with the, you mentioned eating, for example, mm -hmm. I, this is a very common one. I don't, know. I don't know if you saw the memes that emerged during the pandemic. So first it was the quarantine 15. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. the freshman 15 in college, yeah. the quarantine 15. And one of my patients <laughs> the other day came in and she just matter of factly said, I have the COVID 20. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, this isn't a new virus. And she's like, no, it's the 20 pounds that I gained, you know, during COVID I have the COVID 20. So that that's definitely going in my new book, <laughs> but the, uh, that, that one, you know, just as a, let's use eating as an example, you know, so during the pandemic, many people were working from home. I still, my clinic is still virtual. I haven't actually gone back into my outpatient clinic, you know, setting yet. It's all virtual. And so for everybody that's, that's been working from home, they have ready access to food. 
And with the pandemic, there, there's tons of uncertainty and our brains don't like uncertainty. And so we want to make that go away. So, you know, our brain says, hey, the refrigerator's right over there. You can distract yourself for a little bit. And so this is an example of how these habits can form through anxiety. So any habit forms in a, in th with three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So imagine anxieties that trigger, we feel anxious or we, there's some uncertainty or whatever, and then we eat and it distracts us or it tastes good or whatever. And so that feels better than the anxiety. So the result is that our brain says, Hey, next time I'm anxious, you should do this again. And so we start to learn to stress eat as a habit or, you know, eat out of boredom or eat to distract ourselves. So that's eating. Now let's look at all these others because the mechanism is the same for all of them. We go on social media, we check our newsfeed, uh, we, we drink alcohol. So alcohol consumption has gone up a lot during the pandemic uh, for, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And I've had patients, you know, again, ready access to alcohol. <laughs> you know, it's not like people are stashing a, a bottle in, in their office. Well, some people do, but generally that's uh, not so very socially acceptable. Yeah. Well, when you're on a Zoom meeting or whatever, there's only, <laughs> you know, people can't see what you've got in the other room. And so it's much easier to have that access and to be drawn to drink, for example. So those are just some examples of all these, all these pandemic habits, so to speak, or all these anxious habits that form as a way to help, you know, distract ourselves or try to make ourselves feel better when we're anxious. And especially when we're working from home, right? I mean, everything is around us. I mean, Lauren and I, we both don't really, well, Lauren goes into an office, but when she does work at home, both of us, we work in our kitchens because we only have one bedroom apartments. So you don't have that separate space. And so we often tell our listeners, you know, create a very, very calm space. That's like less distracting because it's so easy to be distracted by working for working in your kitchen. You're going to snack. <laughs> when you're in an office, you're, you're probably less likely or grab a drink or whatever, because you're yeah. in, you're in your home space. So, yeah. What was really interesting in your book too, was that you talked about anxiety does benefit us. As I, I actually heard an interview once and they're like, we need anxiety in our life to a degree, because if you didn't, you would be in jail. There, there's just a point where it, it does benefit you to some degree. That is a great question and a question that has been studied scientifically. So it, it really depends on if somebody reads the internet or reads scientific studies in terms of <laughs> whether they see their, or even look at their own experience to see whether there's a, there's an actual <laughs> benefit to anxiety. So I say this, and I wrote a little bit about it in the unwinding anxiety book, but the idea is it actually I traced this back because I was so fascinated by it. This goes back to a study done in, I think, 1908. So over 100 years ago, two researchers, Yerkes and Dodson, who studied Japanese dancing mice. Okay, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. And they, they were looking to see if they could you know, improve performance in some maze or whatever. The, the task doesn't even, it's not even that important. And they found basically that mice that are asleep, they don't go very fast. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And then with a certain amount of arousal, and I think they shocked them or something to get them aroused um, or not, you know, like alert, let's say <laughs> alert. Yeah. And then, you know, so a little bit of, you know, prodding got them, you know, alert and then doing their thing. And then a lot of prodding, you know, freak, basically freaked them out. And so they said, oh, you know, arousal affects performance, which makes sense. You know, if you're asleep, not going to perform well, if you're totally freaked out, not going to perform well. 
Well, in the 1950s, somebody gave a lecture and kind of loosely tied that together with anxiety. And then somebody else made this bold claim saying, you know, more, you know, there's this inverted U-shaped curve for anxiety without any evidence, you know, and again, doing some experiment with rats, I think in this case, and then came along, you know, and, and these studies were largely ignored for a hundred years. And then the internet was invented mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then the trouble began. So people started citing, they called the inverted Yerkes Dodson curve, you know, of performance anxiety without evidence. And <laughs> there's actually somebody that wrote a uh, paper in 2013 talking about the myth of, you know, of this performance anxiety, because if you actually look at it, it, when you look at the research, there's an inverse, a direct inverse relationship between anxiety and performance. Any amount of anxiety is not helpful. Right. And so this was this mashing up this casual massing up. And I would say inaccurate. So not very precise where people are starting to link anxiety and arousal. Uh, and also not looking at the actual data around anxiety. If, if we all look at our own lives, so we could look at the studies and say, okay, so somebody put a meme out on the internet and it sounds good and it justifies me. You know, I can rationalize having anxiety for myself, which is probably what I've had a lot of people be like, but I need my anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, you're attached to your anxiety, but does that yeah. mean you need it? Yeah. So, you, you know, wearing it as a badge of honor doesn't mean it helps your performance and ask your boss, does it help you on performance reviews? You know, well, the more anxious, you know, even they've optimized their anxiety and that's helped them perform well. That's, no. that's BS. Yeah. So if you, if you look at it, the best performance, you know, is not some middle ground of anxiety. It's actually when somebody's in flow. And this is where I like, you know, Chloe Kim, for example, she's a rock star in, in the sports world. Uh, for those that don't know her, she's a snowboarder. I think she won the gold medal in the 2018 Olympics, and she might've won again in 2022. I don't remember, but she absolutely rocked it in the half pipe in 2018. And she had this grin on her face, basically like she was having the time of her life. Now, if you go out there and you, and you're really nervous when you're doing airs like that, you know, guess what? You're going to fall. But if you just go out there and relax and you loosen up, that's when you crush it. And so whether we're an, an Olympic athlete or just anybody, you know, trying to do our job, you know, when do we do a better job when we're worried? No, because that worry is actually taking up energy and making it harder for us to devote that energy in the direction that we need to go. It also makes it harder for us to be creative. It makes it harder for us to connect with others. It just, you know, it just gets in the way of everything. So if, if people don't remember anything else from this podcast, I would say, you know, test your assumptions about performance anxiety and see if it's just an attachment to anxiety as compared to it actually helping. (laughs) So I'm glad you asked that question. No, it was so interesting to me because I think people think, oh, I'm anxious, which is good. I'm worrying about this. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to find a solution. And we also equate anxiety and worry to success. It's like, oh, I have a stressful life. And we like romanticize that. So it was really interesting how that's not how it is at all. No, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah, no. So I, I think the confusion is, and I, I think I've heard this many times. It's like, it's not going to help your productivity. I think we confuse 
anxiety is a good thing because maybe it's not anxiety. Maybe it's, it's self-motivation. Like you need that mm-hmm. self-motivation yeah. and that gets you started. I don't think that my anxious feelings serve me. You're right. I think about myself in uh, high school years when I would get up in front of a class and my face would always go red because I was so nervous and so anxious. And I remember one day being like, okay, I'm going to just not get anxious. I can't control my red face. And I told everybody my face is going to go red, just telling you in advance and like going into it very calm was helpful, right? Like that was, that was the best. And I'm, I'm glad that you've confirmed that for me because I do love to have these discussions around anxiety with peers. And now I can say, Hey, that anxiety that you have actually isn't going to make you more productive. So I want to move the conversation over. You talk about how anxiety is a habit loop and how unhealthy cycles of fear and worry can often leave us feeling stuck. Now, can you describe what a habit loop is, including like the four steps and why we get stuck? I'd be happy to. And we touched on this a tiny bit, but let's get, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. So three elements for any habit, you know, trigger a behavior and a result. And with anxiety, it's really interesting because in that definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry. And so if we wake up in the morning and we feel anxious, we feel worried, that physical sensation or even a thought, you know, that, oh no, how's this going to go? You know, our brains don't like uncertainty. So, you know, anything related to uncertainty can be more likely to trigger anxiety. So that feeling of anxiety can actually trigger a mental behavior. And that mental behavior tends to be worrying, right? So a feeling of worry can trigger a mental behavior of worrying. Interesting how it can be, you know, that noun and that verb. And that mental behavior, right? So trigger behavior result, that mental behavior results in, so if you look at the research, it makes us feel like we're in control or it distracts us from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety. And, or I think of it as we could sit there and worry and not have control, or we could sit there and worry about something and feel like it's better than doing nothing, even though it's actually worse than doing nothing. (laughs) Because as we talked about, worrying doesn't help. So that, that habit develops because that worrying feeds back and tells our brain, Hey, you know, this is better than doing nothing. So the next time we're anxious, it triggers us to worry again, which then feeds back and makes us more anxious. And then we actually can go over this event horizon <laughs> of anxiety, worry, anxiety, worry into that event horizon of, you know, over into that black hole of, of panic, even that constant cycle that we can't get over. I mean, that's, yes. oh, I mean, Lauren and I, we, we, you know, we're close friends and we'll call each other when we are in these habit loops and just chatting with each other is, is definitely helpful. But at the end of the day, we have the power to control it on our end, which is the most fascinating part about your book. It's like you, you talk about how we, there is a solution. We can train our brains. And so I guess the bigger question I have is how can we begin to hack our brains to break unhealthy habit loops? Or what are some of the brain-based practices we can adopt to stop the cycle of fear and worry? Well, here I think of it at, and it's funny how a lot of things somehow break down into a three-step process. And so this just happened to break down into a three-step process. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. And this came from a lot of work we were doing, not only in my lab, but also in my clinic. I was running these groups it actually was with this, we had this app called eat right now, you know, where it was helping people with this stress and emotional eating. And we were running groups with them, live groups where we would, you know, they'd use the app 
uh, during the week. And then they'd come in weekly and we'd uh, have kind of a flipped classroom model where they could bring questions and problems that they were struggling with. And we, we'd all work through them together. So everybody could learn from there. And in that group, we started to notice that people were having a discrete process of change where the first step was that they were able to map out their habit loops. And that's actually explicit. We would have them do that. So that was pretty straightforward. And then we would, they started to, you know, start to pay close attention to what they were getting from the results of that habit loop. And we'll talk about why that's so important in a minute. And then the third step was what they were defining. They called it, we did this qualitative study where I think that the term was this unforced freedom of choice that emerged from embodied awareness. I should probably put it on a bow tie when I say that, but you know, it sounds a little esoteric, this unforced freedom of choice. They were talking about how they could change their eating habits when they paid attention and listened, basically listened to the wisdom of their bodies. And so that three-step process is actually, it was, it was so clear that we baked that right into our unwinding anxiety app, as we call it the three gears. I like to ride my bicycle. So I use that analogy. And the idea is that with this first step, when we map out our habit loops, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result? It's that simple. Once we map that out, that starts to build momentum. It's like you're, you're in first gear when you're driving a car. A uh, concrete example, I, I have a patient that I actually wrote about in the book who was referred to me for anxiety, described how he would get panic attacks on the highway. He was avoiding driving on the highway and all that. And so we spent 30 seconds and just mapped out his panic habit loops. So his trigger was thinking about driving on the highway because he'd had previous panic attacks. The behavior was that he'd avoid driving on the highway. He was even nervous driving to my office on the local roads. So that was the, the behavior was avoidance. And then the result was that he could avoid having panic attacks. And I just wrote it out on a piece of paper with him and drew arrows between the three to show him the habit loop. And he, and he looked at me like I just explained, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity or whatever, <laughs> you know, where, you know, he, he had been struggling for literally for 30 years with anxiety. He was about 40 years of age when he came to see me. So he'd been struggling for three quarters of his life. And he had no idea that these, this was driven like a habit. And just knowing that was tremendously empowering for him. So it might seem simple, this process of mapping out these habit loops, but it can be, it's, it's a critical first step and it can be really <laughs> empowering to start with. So does that make sense before we go into the next step? Yeah. And does that mean that he was, and, and I, I assume, so he was, he saw, he was mind mapping, he was understanding the, the, the cycle, the constant cycle, and he was avoiding everything. Now, how did, so I guess you, in your book, you talk about how we should get curious about our sensations that we can be more mindful about these habit loops. Now I'm wondering, did he change that? Did he get out and drive again? I mean, and how did he manage that? Where is he now? Yeah. So let's use him as an example to talk through the next two steps. So uh, I called him Dave in the, in the book, his real name is Rob and he's, he's comfortable with people knowing his real name. Uh, so, so yes, I do not make these people up. I actually have a clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the second step is really about tapping into our brain's power. You know, it's think, I think of the buzz, you know, the, the buzz line would be you use your brain you know, and, and not just like think about it because we often try to think our way, whether it's, you know, oh, I have to just tell myself to eat 
cake and or salad instead of cake, for example, if I'm, you know, if I'm eating a bunch of junk food or, you know, if I worry too much, just tell myself to stop, you know, it's not how our brains work. Uh, our brain, willpower is more myth than muscle. How our brains actually work is through this principle called reinforcement learning or reward-based learning that we've been talking about. And that critically depends on one thing, how rewarding a behavior is. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the trigger is not that important because it doesn't perpetuate a, a habit cycle. What is critical is how rewarding it is. That's why it's called reward-based learning. So what I have people do is to get curious. You were, you were touching on this a moment ago. I have people get curious about what they're actually getting from the worrying. And so Rob started asking himself, like, what am I getting from worrying? And he, in fact, was having a stress eating habit. He was very um, at a very unhealthy weight. And so <laughs> I send him home to start mapping out his habit loops around anxiety. And he comes back two weeks later, already visibly changed. He didn't look as anxious. So I was thinking, okay, you learned something. The first thing he says to me, <laughs> he goes, hey, doc, I lost 14 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. He was, he was like 180 pounds overweight. So, you know, and so I said to him, you know, I looked confused because I was confused because I was like, did we even talk about eating? Because I was, I was going to hold off on that until we, you know, got the anxiety under control. And he said, I started mapping out my anxiety habit loops. And I realized that I was eating as a way to, you know, I was stress eating and it wasn't helping. It wasn't rewarding. It was actually making me feel worse because I know that it's not good. You know, I've sleep apnea and a, you know, high blood pressure and all this stuff because of his weight. And so he said, Oh, so I just stopped doing that. And he said, you know, it was, it was, it's not like I had to tell myself to stop. It just, I just saw that it wasn't rewarding. And I use him as an example because that really highlights this critical principle. If we can pay attention and see that something is not rewarding, we will naturally become disenchanted with it. We don't have to force ourselves or tell ourselves to stop doing it, you know, stop worrying. We just worry more. Oh, why can't I stop worrying? And we worry about that. It's really about asking ourselves, what do I get from this? You know, what am I getting from the worrying? And is it helping me? And no, it's, it doesn't help. As we talked about, worry just makes things worse. So that's that second step. And as Rob started to, to pay attention, not only was it helping him with his eating, he actually went on to lose over a hundred pounds. He said it was effortlessly because, you know, it was just like, well, this isn't serving me. (laughs) And he he was disenchanted with it. But then the other piece was that, you know, the third step here is what I call bringing in the bigger, better offer, the BBO. So with that, you know, our brains are all, you know, our brains are going to pick behaviors that are more rewarding than others. You know, if A or B, if A is you know, feels better than B, I'm going to do A naturally, because that's how our brains are set up. So if we can start to pay attention and see how unrewarding worry is, we can then offer our brains something more rewarding. And that bigger, better offer is curiosity itself. So we can get curious about what do I get from worry? And we can also get curious about the anxiety, the feeling of anxiety. And then we can compare those two behaviors. Well, if I worry about anxiety, how does that feel versus if I get curious about what anxiety feels like in my body? Well, curiosity wins every time, you know, it's a no brainer. So long story short, Rob started getting curious about what's anxiety feel like. And, you know, he'd really not done this before because he'd been running away from it his whole life. About five or six months into treatment, I, I was walking out of our school of public health at, at Brown university, which is in on main street in Providence, Rhode Island. So you know, relatively busy street. I'm walking out on the sidewalk and this car pulls up guy rolls down his window and it's Rob. 
I'm thinking, oh, great. He's driving. And no, no kidding. He says to me, hey, doc, I'm an Uber driver now. I'm headed to the airport what? to pick somebody up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Complete 180. That's amazing. Yeah. That's Incredible. amazing. And you, you said it took him a few months. How long, if someone started recognizing these habit loop behaviors today, how long would it take to break that anxiety loop? Well, I can say on a population level, because it's really it depends on the person. Yeah. So the more carefully we pay attention to these habit loops and the more clearly we can see that worry is unrewarding and the more we can naturally replace that with curiosity, the faster it goes. So I would say on average, when we've done clinical studies, you know, in this study with generalized anxiety disorder, we saw this 67% reduction in anxiety in two months. And we'd already wow. seen, I want to say a 47%, some, some significant reduction at one month. So we start to see change happen relatively quickly and we see big change. I mean, this is just, these are our clinically you know, determined endpoints. So this is somewhat arbitrary, but within two months, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing pretty big changes. So it's not like, you know, you've been worrying 30 years, you know, it's going to take you 30 years to unwind that. No, it can actually happen relatively quickly. Thank you for listening. That was the first half of our discussion with Dr. Jed Brewer. And if you'd like to hear more, please refer back to episode 133 and start at approximately 34 minutes in to hear the rest of our discussion. And you can find this quick link in the show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Jed Brewer, please also check out links to each his website, his book on winding anxiety, his TED talk titled A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, and a list of applications that he created to help us manage our anxieties. And please stay tuned for a new episode next week where I speak with licensed clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Lauren Cook, to discuss insights from her latest book called Generation Anxiety, which releases on September 19th. And lastly, as always, you can learn more about us at Millennium Minimalist on Instagram and Facebook and our Closet Decluttering e-guide and our weekly closet decluttering courses on our website at mastersimplicity.com. So thanks again for listening, everyone. And I will speak with you next week. Bye-bye.